Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and joining me today is David Bennett, author of Voyage of Purpose. David had three transformative experiences. In 1983, he drowned and had a near-death experience while he was chief engineer of the ocean research vessel Aloha. He experienced a spiritually transformative experience in 1994 when he was meditating in Sedona, Arizona. And then the third time was in November 2000, when David was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer that had metastasized into the spine, causing it to collapse. David has been in remission for 10 years now. He's retired, and his passion includes working with people who have had these experiences and also cancer survivors, helping them to integrate their transport transformative experiences. He writes every day for blogs, magazines, and social media under the name Dharma Talks. Welcome, David. I'm so delighted to have this opportunity to talk with you. Thank you, Miriam. It's great to be here. Well, you know, everybody is so fascinated with the stories of near-death experiences. And when you hear it firsthand, uh, from somebody who was, you know, not a particularly spiritual person before all of this happened. They're, they're so fascinated, including me. Now, what do most people want to hear about when they ask you about your near-death experience? Most people are interested in, in what was it like? What, I mean, what happened, you know, the, the actual near death experience? And many are fascinated with the light, um, because the, the light is so much more than just a light that we're used to, the sun, the, you know, lights in our, in our environment. It was alive. It was, to me, it felt like millions of fragments of light. Um, to, and I, all, I, it also felt because it's not just a, a visual; it's also a feeling. It's it's um, it's it's so much larger than us. It, it exudes love and compassion. It it's breathing. It's living and it's moving. And it looked like a million of fragments. And I always relate it to all the souls that ever were and all the souls that ever will be. You know that sort of sort of thing. That's pretty overwhelming. It's interesting that in the past week, I would say, or no, past two weeks, I have heard a similar description from two very respected people, from uh, Drunvalo Melchizedek and from Meg Blackburn Losey, both of them saying that it is all light. Mm. It yes. is all light. And all love as well. The love is so overpowering. I think that's what makes the experience so transformative. When you come back to life, you have to learn how to live with this experience. And, but that love is what transforms you because you've experienced something that is otherworldly. And now you're trying to incorporate that into your life, trying to integrate that into your life. And, you try to exude that same level of love, which is very difficult because we're human, we're fallible, you know, <laughs> that's just the way life is. But um, you strive all of your life ever, 
ever since any type of spiritually transformative experience. And you don't have to die to have one of these experiences. You can, you can have a spiritually transformative experience or just transformative experience, and it can change the way you live your life. Well, you see so, I see so many books uh, by people who have had either great traumas in their life, deep despair, abusive childhoods, NDEs. They, they seem to push people into an altered state where they start to communicate with spirit. Why do you think it takes that intensity of experience to push somebody over the edge? Well, when you think about it, Miriam, when do we reach out for spirit? It's when we're suffering. It's when we're many times at our lowest low or, or when we are challenged, you know, when we're challenged to to that point, to that certain point. And I believe that um, we, um, our consciousness lives on in such a pure form that we finally, when we're pushed to that point, we can finally touch it and we can finally see our whole being, our true being. You had some fascinating insights when you were in that light about how it all works. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, like, did you see God and, and were they, were your relatives waiting for you? Actually, yes. Um, but not like relatives that had lived this life with me here. I met, um, light beings, but when I came into the light, they, these were like fragments of light that broke away and greeted me and welcomed me home. I'd had a pretty you know, pretty messed up uh, life prior to. I didn't have a sense of family. And I suddenly had, knew these light beings. I knew them. I recognized them as my family. And they were welcoming me home. And in fact, I, I get a little choked up just thinking about it. But they, and they spoke to me and they greeted me and they actually went through a life review with me, these, uh, these light beings. It was... Um, and, and besides the love, the life review was, I would say, is the second most transformative part of, of my experience. Mm -hmm. uh, because in the life review, you look so close at your life. You, you, my soul family and I experienced my entire life from the point of view of everyone I'd ever interacted with. So it wasn't just my experience. I got to feel my experience whenever I interacted with someone else. And I got to feel their passion. I got to feel what they experienced. And, and, and um, so you get to feel their pain, their joy. And, and, and this creates these cascading ripples of, of after effects and, and thoughts and actions and um, you learn how your actions affect others and, and your future. So you get to see a much bigger picture. And, and our consciousness is so connected with the light that we have, you know, it's, it, it's expanded. We, it's not like the restrictions that we have with our, our mental faculties here in a physical body. Mm -hmm. And you said it's all done from a, a position of non-judgment, that it's not like you're being weighed in the balance and found wanting. No. Um, in fact, I, in my experience, because I was a pretty brash young man, 
prior to my near-death experience. And I had to relive some of the harsher things I'd done in life. And I was, I was, I actually was, was ashamed that my soul family here had to experience this with me because they were experiencing it right along with me. And, but they didn't, they didn't judge it at all. They were supporting me throughout, throughout the whole thing. And, but on the other side, when I did something with loving intention, that I believe created some of the biggest ripples um, in this life review was when I did, I would do something without, you know, without looking for reward or anything like that, but just, just, uh, with loving intention, those created some of the biggest ripples in, in the near death experience. When you say ripples, what do you mean by that? Well, it, every time we interact with each other, we create, um, uh, kind of like a conscious action is is created it, within our spheres, within our spheres, uh, within our circles, and and that sort of thing. And so these ripple out, just like a just like whenever there's an action of a drop in a pond, it ripples out. The energy moves outward. And so whenever we interact, and especially when we interact with passion, I've, I, it seemed like the more passion behind our actions, the larger the ripples. So if we were very passionate in a loving intention way, it would create bigger after effects. But if we, and all, same thing if we were, did it in a, in a, in a more hateful way with passion behind that, um, it would drive the intensity even more. Hmm. So clearly you believe that there is an afterlife that we persist beyond this mortal incarnation. Yeah, most definitely. Um, our, our consciousness lives on in, in a purer form. It's more expansive and, um, and we're liberated from this physical form. Um, cause this life, uh, in fact, coming back to my body, I was aff- I couldn't figure out how this light being, this expansive me, was going to fit in that little <laughs> body of flesh and bone. You know, um, it. it <laughs> in fact, I was a bit mystified by it um, until I actually entered my body. But then, once you enter your body, you feel like you're confined. You feel heavy, confined, and I still feel that way sometimes when I'm. When I, you know, talk about the light and I, I relive that part of my life, um, I still feel weighed down and heavy and, and wish that I had that expansive consciousness that I had in the light. Did you want to come back or did you want to stay on the other side? No, I didn't want to come back. In fact, when I was told um, by the light, the light actually resonated and told me um, I had to return. I had a purpose. And I said, no way. <laughs> no way. I, Go I, on. Argue with yeah, God. Go on. Yeah, yeah. So I argued with God. I, I said, you know, I've found a family. I've got love here that I've never felt in my life. And and my body is, is uh, being tumbled and tossed in that ocean. And I know it's broken. And I it just seemed like something cold and dark to me. I just didn't want to go back there. Mm. And... The, the, the sensation of waking up, um, were you able to, re- how were you able to retain this experience? I mean, most of us have difficulty just retaining a dream. 
that's the, I think, it's very difficult to, um, to explain how I remember it so well, but it's, it's like I live it every day. This experience seemed, well, they, I, I've heard uh, some experiencers call it hyper-real, um, that it was more real than this reality. And so it's, it's something that it became, became immediately a part of who I am. And I remember, now the, it, it's kind of funny, you, it takes time to, to integrate the whole thing. Because when you come back, if you were, you know, if you were this type of person when, before you had the experience and then you have the experience, you're not immediately changed into some blissful being, you know. I mean, we're still human. Mm-hmm. And we still have the same buttons, they get pushed the same way. But you start to change. It's like the experience is a seed that was planted. And then how you deal with the experience, how you nurture it, um, will kind of steer your future path quite a bit. It definitely changed me. It turned me 360 degrees out to, um, to a new life. And, and every day I live with this experience. In fact, I use it as a gauge. I use it Whenever I'm going to make a decision, whenever I'm interacting with other people, I'm always conscious of how this, how this is going to play out in the next life review. How is, how am I um, expressing my love? It, it just has become a part of my life. Mm. Oh, there are so many aspects of this I want to explore. I mean, uh, okay, I'll just pick one. <laughs> Um, so you talk about the, the, the life review when you come back and, and presume, and you, you now have a new attitude, a new understanding of death and, and living, um, and you're changing yourself and then you get hit with stage four bone and lung cancer and the doctors totally give up on you. How was it that you managed to keep going, and how did you actually put yourself into remission? Well, fortunately, it was uh, the cancer was many years after my near-death experience, um, so I had had a lot of time to integrate the experience and, and create a new way of living. But also, in my life review, uh, before I was told I had to return, I actually experienced part of my future. And in that, I saw that I was going to have cancer. I didn't know at the time when it was going to be. Uh, I, I like to say that timing in, 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 in the light just uh, doesn't work. There is no time there. So to try to correlate it to a period in my life, I didn't have an idea, a clue. In fact, I thought that I was going to have cancer, but I thought it was going to be much later in life. Mm-hmm. But in that preview of life, I actually saw that I was going to survive the cancer as well. So when I was diagnosed with the cancer, I immediately accepted it. Unfortunately, everyone around me thought I was in denial. Um, <laughs> because I, you know, they were consoling me. Oh, you know, you've only got weeks to live and we're going to make you as comfortable as possible. And I was, you know, holding, cause one of the people that was in the room when the diagnosis came was, um, was a nurse who was my secretary. Mm-hmm. 
prior, while she was going to nursing school, she was my secretary. And, and so she's, you know, crying and I'm, I'm holding her going, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here. (laughs) (laughs) But, and so they think I'm in denial, but uh, meanwhile, I had, I went right to acceptance. I accepted uh, that I was going to have the cancer, that I was going to go through this because there was purpose behind it. But I also knew I was going to survive it and that they didn't understand that. So I was able to put together a healthcare team to help me get through it because they were, you're right, they were, they had pretty much written me off. They were just going to make me comfortable. But I told them, no, we're going to, we're going to treat this. And uh, Spirit guided me as to treat, balancing out traditional medicine with holistic medicine. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to, within six months, to be cancer-free. Wow. You know, it's interesting. I remember reading a book by a, a doctor who said that he did a study while he was in medical school, and there was a one-to-one correlation between how much the doctor believed a patient would get well and the prognosis for that patient, whether they would get well. Yeah, it's interesting. If you believe that you will get well, boy, you're halfway there. And you have to have a supportive healthcare team too mm-hmm. when you when you put your team together. I had one doctor who came in, um, who was a, a, a spinal surgeon. He was evaluating me because of the collapsed spine, and he basically said, "Dave, you know, I, I'm not. A, there's no need for me to even be here consulting um, because you only have weeks." And, <laughs> and I said, "That's fine." You're fired. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> if, if you're not if you're not on board with uh, with me getting past the cancer, then you know you're not going to be part of my healthcare team. So, so, what were the elements of, of your treatment, your self treatment, and your? Well, I used. I mean, I did. I I actually had uh, two two doctors that that helped me a radiation oncologist and a regular oncologist. And normally you have one oncologist, but um, I had to. It just kind of, Spirit just provided these people. They just kind of crossed my path and and they were really on board with what I was trying to do. Um, And so kind of some some medical mistakes at that time, because at that time they wouldn't do radiation therapy and chemotherapy at the same time. Mm -hmm. They just weren't, they're doing it more now and now from you know, the more cancer patients I talk to, I hear more and more people are going through this. But at the time, they weren't. And so they I was actually getting radiation daily and, and chemo um, once a week uh, during the initial stage of this. And <clears throat> then I balanced it out with holistic approaches because I knew what was going on. I, I asked Spirit for help. And I we reached out to, you know, we went out on the on the internet, to friends, to family, and and we got all these recommendations that came in, and some of them were 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 pretty good, some of them not so good, um, but I weighed them. I let spirit guide me through what would work, and and I used the, and what works for me. I, I like to make sure because this is going to be broadcast. I, I want to make sure that uh, that people understand what works for me necessarily isn't going to work for everybody. So you have to weigh this with your intuitive knowing, you know, and your your spiritual self. But 
I used um, I used reishi mushrooms uh, for my immune system. Um, uh, a product that's called Propex. At the time, it was just developed for chemo patients as a nutritional supplement, and it's totally organic. It's um, uh, it, it really helped my energy levels quite a bit. But now they use it in, in multiple, all types of therapies. They use Propex mm. now. Um, and um, also we used, uh, of course, the power of prayer. We put, we put the word out and, and got everybody working um, on, on prayer and, and intention, positive intention, that, that, you know, that I was going to get past this. Um, it's not something that you should hide from. You should be open about it. This is, this is where you are in your life. You know, ex- accept that this is a part of your life and that, and that you know, to get past it, you just need to work through it. Well, I think I think a lot of uh, studies have been done about the power of prayer. In, in that context, you said in your book, one of the greatest gifts from the oneness is our interconnection and our ability to share our gifts of love with each other. Yeah, and you know what? If you don't allow, if you hide from your cancer and don't let people know about it, you're not allowing them to... Um, participate in a loving interaction with you to get past the cancer. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're not allowing them to help, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and you're doing them an, in, uh, an injustice in a, in a way when you think about it. You uh, talk about in, in, in your book the Christmas miracle that mm. <laughs> was when you, you kind of had this mental about face. Tell us more about that. Well, the, the chemo and the radiation, they wear you down. It's just, it, it just wears you down. Your energy drops. It's, it's just very debilitating. And uh, I knew I was going to survive, but you're, you know, when you get this, when you get this, you know, this, this chemical attack on your body it it just it just brings you down and so i was at a very low point when christmas came because i was diagnosed in november started treatment so a month later i'm at a really low point and and but i'm still you know trying to follow through but the problem with the chemo the radiation and all the medications that they were pumping through me it it blocked my ability to hear spirit. That was very disconcerting. Well, on Christmas Day, we get a phone call from a friend who um, had Padre Pio's glove. And now, I didn't know who Padre Pio was. My wife, Cindy, she knew Padre Pio because she had gone on, on a... A trip over over to Italy and, and had been actually in his cell, so she knew all about Padre Pio, but I didn't know anything about it. And I'd had a particularly bad day this Christmas day, just because we had friends come over and they just you know just interacting with my friends was uh, was a little little more than than I could take, and so I, I didn't have any energy left when this phone call came. But this woman came out in the middle of a blizzard and brought this glove to our house and. When I held it, the whole house filled with the smell of roses, the scent of roses. I mean, you would swear that you were in a spring garden and the dew was dripping off the petals. It was so fresh, so strong, (laughs) the smell of roses. And we had nothing in the house that was like, we had no rose-scented candles or anything, any perfumes or anything like that in the house. So it was just very startling, and it filled the entire room. And and then... um, and we re- relay 
related, you know, the story of Padre Pio and, and that he had caused miracles and that sort of thing. But later that night, after she had left, she went off and took the glove to someone else for someone else to hold. Um, I, uh, you know, and the scent of roses disappeared. Later on that night when I was trying to, you know, get comfortable and go to sleep in bed, I suddenly smelt the roses again. And I knew, and, and then I could hear spirit. It was, it was so funny. I could hear spirit. And so spirit, we spent most of that, that night communicating and it gave me visualizations and things that I could use to help me through, throughout this. So I call it a Christmas miracle because I feel that Padre Pio came into, into my life in a kind of very strange way and, and bestowed on me this gift of knowing that, yes, you're right where you need to be and you're and you're going forward, and and uh, here, uh, you know, here's your connection to spirit back, and uh, and spirit showed me how to work with the medication so as to dose down off of these pain medications so that I could hear spirit clearer um, throughout the treatment. How beautiful! You you talk about in, in your near death experience, your first one that. They sent you back because you had a purpose. You had something to do. Is that something, you know, so many people ask, what is my purpose in life? Is that something that everyone has, that it's just up to us to discover it? I think, I think we're all looking for our purpose. Um, and, and this just highlighted it in my life. And, and that's kind of what the book is all about, really. It's, it's my journey from, kind of living uh, a life where I was more not really awake to an awakening and then knowing that I have a purpose and then searching for it throughout throughout life. Because when I came back, I I mentioned how you come back, you come into this dense body. Well, you don't have that expanded consciousness anymore. You're not connected to that. And, and I kept thinking purpose, purpose, purpose. What is this purpose? You know? And, uh, (laughs) and so I was frustrated at first because I did, I knew what the purpose was when I agreed to come back, but I, here I am. And now I don't remember what the purpose was. (laughs) So, (laughs) It was very frustrating at first. And so I had to work with what I had available with me. You know, that, that what I'd learned in the experience, I slowly took some of that. I had another spiritual experience about 11 years later that really drove it home for me that, that I need to walk my talk, that I need to really live, um, and, and start to follow my flow, the synchronicities in life. When when something happens, then follow it. Don't just ignore it. You know, go with it. And then life began. Then I started to see how the purpose was unfolding in my life and little things. Because I believe we don't have just one grand purpose. I believe we have some large ones in our path laid out before us. But I also believe that we have, because of our free will, that we can wander around on our path back and forth a little bit. Um, and 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 in that wandering that we have a lot of smaller purposes you know spirit will put us right where we need to be in order to maybe help someone or maybe plant a seed of consciousness here or there and but i was all of this was in preparation for me to go through my cancer um my greater purpose is now actually is after i survive the cancer now i can talk to 
patients that are that are terminal because I was terminal. I've been there. And I can talk to patients that are going through cancer, um, the agony, the suffering of it. I know what it's like. I've been there. And so I feel like I'm really working on a higher purpose now than I was at any point in my life prior. Mm-hmm. I think you said that one-third of the U.S. population has had a spiritually transformative experience. Why do you think you're not talking more about these? Yeah, there was a study in uh, the University of Chicago, uh, I think 2004, they did a study that showed that around one-third of the population had, had some sort of spiritually transformative experience. But the... But it's funny, we haven't developed a culture that supports experiencers. I, I group everybody, whether you've had a near-death experience or a spontaneous awakening or a kundalini, whatever you want to call it, whatever type of experience you've had, it, we don't have a culture, we don't have a, a community to support us. And no, I, we, uh, we are afraid of being ridiculed, so people don't tend to talk about it. Exactly. So we're kind of in the closet in, in many, mm-hmm. so many different ways. And, and, and even with our own families, I, I mean, many experiencers that I meet and talk to are afraid to tell their family. They're afraid of ridicule. We're afraid. I have experiencers because I have a, a sharing group and it, because I feel that we need community. So I've, I've started a sharing group in, in my area here where uh, experiencers get to come and it's a safe environment. We're all experiencers in the room. We can all share openly and no one is going to criticize anyone else. And so in that environment, you know, I hear so many different stories. People that have been kicked out of their church because they tried to share their spiritual experience with their pastor. Now, who are you going to go to when you have a spiritual experience? You know, I mean, it doesn't make sense. This is what I mean. We don't have a culture that supports experiencers or spiritually transformative experiences. A third of the nation is living with this under the surface. And and I just, it astounds me. It astounds me. (laughs) (laughs) David, how do you put yourself into the state where you're able to communicate with spirit? Well, at first... It was uh, a little difficult. In fact, I had to learn how my connection with spirit worked. And I actually, I started with a very simple thing that we all have, my creativity. Um, we are all creative with something. Um, my, my creativity at the time was I found that I loved working as a silversmith. And, and I developed my technique as a silversmith, purely through inspiration, purely through my um, creative um, self. And I think that many times that's an easy doorway to learn how spirit communicates. Because when spirit communicates, there's no judgment. There's no ridicule, no demeaning of yourself, your being. Um, It's just purely communication, pure communication for your you know, for your higher good. So it's easy to recognize when the monkey mind is talking because there's always little innuend, little things that goes off in these tangents. But when spirit communicates, it usually is also, a, I, I feel it in my heart. 
I feel my heart. It, it, I, I like to say that my heart sings when spirit's communicating with me. And so, but I've also talked to other people. They feel it in their hands. They feel it in the crown of their head or at the back of their neck. And, and so with uh, spirit communication, I feel that there's actual physical sensation that goes along with it. And when you listen to spirit, you it it's it's usually uh, not usually it's it's all the time going to lead you where you need to be you know mm-hmm. look at the times that that you um the synchronicity as well that comes mm-hmm. into your life you listen to spirit and then synchronistically you're in a place to plant the seed that spirit just bestowed on you is that related to what you said was so important, which is mindfulness? Yeah, mindfulness is um, is a way to bring uh, yourself into every day, er, the tasks of every day. Um, I I have to I have to use mindfulness because of my when my spine collapsed, um, there was a tremendous amount of pain. And so, fortunately, I'd been working with spirit on being more mindful, more in the present, more in this moment. And mindfulness actually helped me to be able to manage my pain. I manage my pain by every morning when I get up, that seems to be the time that my pain is actually at its worst, at its peak. I do my morning gratitudes, and and it puts me in um, a meditative state. I actually do a meditate. I start with my gratitudes. I go through a little meditation where I communicate with spirit. And then that helps me stepping forward in a more mindful manner. I'm present. Once, once I connect into the stillness, I talk to spirit, I am present. I am wholly there. Then I can take my pain. I can see it and visualize it. And then what I do is I set it aside. And it allows me, it's there, and it's there to remind me. I like it being there because it reminds me if I'm about to do something very silly, which I'm, you know, again, I'm a fallible human being. I do dumb stuff all the time. And uh, so I want the pain there so that when I'm about to do something dumb, it's going to remind me, Dave, hey, that's going to hurt. Um, you know? <laughs> I might point out to the listener that you now have a titanium spine. Yes, yes. And and titanium spine, uh, titanium is, is very rigid. Of course, the spine moves uh, with, uh, you know, with the temperature and everything and, you know, the atmospheric pressure and all that stuff. So it's a great barometer. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> but with that barometer, you tell by the pain level. You know, your pain level goes up and down just by, by weather systems. But I can set that aside, and I can live my life. Now I can do what I normally want to do. I, 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 got, I got out of the wheelchair. I threw away the walker and the cane, and I walk now. I can't feel my hands or feet, but I've developed different ways of, of managing. You know, So I, I have a lot of disabilities, but I manage my life, and I'm positive about my life because I'm being mindful. I'm trying to be present in every moment. Wow. It, 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 you you referred to something called AT and T acceptance, tolerance, and truth. Yeah, those were the first gifts from the very initial near death experience because the experience was so overwhelming it it frightened me at first, and uh, 
But what I could accept right off, or what I could deal with right off the bat was what I called acceptance, tolerance, and truth, AT&T. Mm-hmm. Um, acceptance of myself because before the experience, I was a brash young engineer, I used to cut my swath through life, and I really didn't know who I was. At 26, I didn't have a clue of who I was. After this experience, when you go through that intense life review, I knew who I was. I knew I've got, I know I got issues. I know I have things to work on in this life, but I could accept that this is who I am. And then the second gift was tolerance. Tolerance is more, you know, being tolerant of life situations. This is where we are. This is, and, and these are the people that are, are present at this time. And we need to be tolerant. And we need to be tolerant of other people because our expectations of what, how other people are going to act and, and this sort of thing are never going to work out. Our expectations are unrealistic most of the time because we're human. And, and most of the time we're not connected to our higher consciousness so that we can see a bigger picture. So we need to be tolerant. And so from the experience, I learned to be you know, accept myself, this is who I am, and I'm going to work on myself, and tolerant of others and their paths, and my path, that this is, you know, it may be a bumpy road right now, but I can be tolerant because I know I'm going to get through everything. And then truth, acceptance, tolerance, and truth. Truth was a little harder for me to grasp at first. You got to remember, I was a chief engineer. I had an engineer's uh, mindset. I, I believed, you know, Logic and, and reason were my tools of, of, you know, navigating through life. And, and then I have this more esoteric view of truth, that your truth and my truth can differ because your life experiences and my life experiences and how our heart measures our life is different. We're each different. We're all unique in this physical world. So... How we view truth is dif- differs as well, mm-hmm. and so with these three things, AT and T, I was it, it it that was what really started me down the path of change um, after the experience. Well, it sounds like a, a path that we would all benefit from walking. You talked in the book about future living insights. You were actually seeing your future potentials. Was this only when you actually were in the middle of the uh, near-death experience, or is this something that you can experience at will now? I would say at will. I really have to be in a very centered space, but I can, um, I have had future viewings, and and I had one great mentor, Margaret Keene, who taught me how to touch the light. And once she taught me that I could touch the light again, because I'll tell you, after my near-death experience, I was very fearful of going touching that light again because I was I was afraid of losing control of my emotions because it was so loving so compassionate that I didn't feel like I could handle it Mm -hmm. um 
it, it sounds kind of funny, but it seems like you would want that. But at the time, I actually had, my mind had built up this fear about touching the light. And Margaret helped me find my doorway back to the light, which I found was just through my heart. It was as simple as that. It wasn't anything complicated. But I, if I get into that space, I have the ability to see... Um, future potentials. It's almost like looking uh, down the road and you see the fork that's ahead of you. And then one side of the fork tends to be a little brighter and uh, the other fork not so bright. And, and that way, I, when I get to that point, um, it allows me to make the right decision to be in the right place at the right time. Well, that, that's an important point to keep in mind because sometimes people hear from psychics different things and they really are potentials at this point in time and are uh, developed like a Polaroid picture depending on the choices that we make on the way. Yeah, I think you have to add intention to that as well. Um, we, um, uh, how we intend, um, and, and, and intention is kind of a, a funny thing. You have to, there's, with intention, I hate to use the word faith, but you have to really, in, you know, embrace the intention, um, for your future self, you know, that sort of thing. And leave it open-ended. I always leave any intention um, open to the universe to add adaptive elements, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I, you know, but spirit will tell me and, and guide me. And sometimes I don't want to do it because my human self or my hum, you, ego will say, no, no, you can't do that or something silly like that. And so I, I, I've been known to argue with spirit on quite a few occasions. <laughs> You're only human. <laughs> I know, I'm only human. And, and there's certain things like spirit says, okay, do this. And it's like, no, I don't want to do that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, who do you think is out there in spirit? I mean, is it our guides? Is it our higher self? Is it, you know, the, the kind of uh, consensus of what would be best for humanity? Okay. How does that work? I, yeah, I, well, that, this is me. This is my interpretation. Uh, if it doesn't feel good, don't buy it. Um, but what I feel is my spirit communication is my soul family helping me stay in touch with my higher consciousness. In other words, when I was in the light, I got to see the, the totality of my being, my total light. I got to see it. When I came back into this body, I only brought a sliver of my light, my essence, in with me. And But because I have that sliver of light within me, it allows me to communicate with my soul family and with my totality. Um, and I believe that that's what my spirit communication is. Because And then that part of, the, of my light, my sliver of light, is connected to the whole light, the oneness. And so through our spirit communication, we have the ability to connect to all consciousness. That's so encouraging. In modern society, so many people feel isolated and alienated. 
And if they only had some sense that there was this enormous rooting section family <laughs> out there behind them, if they could just connect to it, what a different world it would be. Yeah, we're not alone. We're not. And we're always loved. That's the thing that we forget. First, that's the first thing we seem to forget is that we are loved. Hmm. You talk about your quiet ministry. What does that mean? Yeah, when I came back, okay, we live in this society, we talked about it, that doesn't really support us. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what I did was um, that I, I realized I needed to live a way, in a way that exemplified what I'd learned in my experiences. And, and, and by acting, knowing that I have this divinity within me, that I and that I can that I'm connected with this divinity that it allows me to then interact with others knowing that keeping that loving intention within me and I don't have to broadcast oh I'm a near death experiencer oh I've had these you know spiritual experiences I don't have to broadcast that I can just live by what I've learned and I called it a quiet ministry because <laughs> It was kind of funny when I had the cancer diagnosis. I'm in the hospital and I had these people coming into my room and they were utilizing, sorry, I'm, <laughs> they were giving, you know, testimony of things that I had done in my life that had touched them. It was almost like a third life review. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it, it, it showed that by living, it showed me that by living our life by what we've learned and using loving intention, that we are, it's like a ministry. It's like, you know, we're, we're living by example. I guess you could say that all of us have our own quiet ministry, and it's just a question of what lessons we're projecting onto the world. Oh, yeah, I agree. Totally, Miriam. I think we... Because we're a, a, a combination of all of our life's experiences that's, that makes us up. And all the people that have interacted with us are a part of us as well. Mm -hmm. So when we live with that in mind, you know, I think, I think we can be a much better person. You said in your book, everything we do in life is either meant to give love or receive love. Is, is unconditional love a realistic goal? I think it's a goal. It, <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult for many of us uh, because, you know, we have stuff thrown at us every day and we get and, – and we have to interact with this world. We live in a reality here. And, um, and, and, and I have friends who really want that to be their day-to-day -day life, that it's – that – you know, love is everything, everything is love. But unfortunately, not everybody in the world subscribes to that. And uh, you do have to pay your insurance premium. You do have to pay the rent. And, um, and, and so I think we need a realistic view that we can interact with loving intention as much as possible. And, but there are times when you have to defend yourself. You can still do that with love in your heart, though. Mm -hmm. It's just very difficult to develop that discipline. Because we're human, we need discipline in order to get to that point where we're loving 
unconditionally. Because we, our culture has taught us that if I love you, I expect this in return. You know, for this love, I expect that. And, um, and, and we've been so, it's been so ingrained into our culture, it takes a lot to change that resonance within our physical being, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about that in, in circles, particularly on the economic scene, funnily enough. But that's another that's another discussion. David, you have thousands of followers on Twitter, Facebook, and people who subscribe to your blog. What do you see as the potential of social media for spiritually focused people? Well, I think, I think that um, social networking is a, a, an amazing tool for us to see and develop that interconnection. I've been able to talk to people all around the world recently, and we're all saying the same thing. We all have the same message, which is very encouraging that that one-third of the population that we talked about earlier is actually starting to communicate with each other a little bit. You know, we're creating – maybe you may not have a, 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 a support group in your area or something like that, but with social media we can reach out and t- talk to people all around the world and i and people are hungry to talk to other spiritually people that are on a spiritual path there's there's just a hunger for it right now in the world i think because the world is suffering right now economically it's pushing us toward even more greater suffering and that we that this social media is a way that we can connect and that we can help each other I couldn't agree more. Uh, of course, I would say that, being in the business I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, tell tell our listeners how to find out more about your work, and tell us a little more about what you do on a day to day basis besides blogging. Um, well, what I I, I I get up, I start my my gratitudes, and I go through a meditation, and I. In my meditation, I call them my reflections. I, um, spirit and I commune and I get these reflections. And then what I do is I break the reflections up into little more bite-sized pieces and I put them out on Twitter. I put them out on Facebook. I put them out, um, and I, and then I might incorporate some of the reflections into a blog post or something like that of that nature. And you can find most of this. It's uh, I use Dharma Talks for. Uh, I've almost branded it because I have the website dharmatalks.com. I have Facebook. Uh, I have a fan page that's Dharma Talks, um, as well as you know my David Bennett profile. But and then on Twitter, I'm Dharma Talks on Twitter. So it's <laughs> pretty easy to find these reflections because I put them out all day. I don't want to insult our listeners, but would you spell that for us? D-H-A-R-M-A, Dharma, Talks, T-A-L-K-S. So Dharma Talks. Okay. And you've also got a website for your book, VoyageOfPurpose.com, right? Yes, on Voyage of Purpose. In fact, if you want a signed copy, purchase it through VoyageOfPurpose.com and... Um, and we'll even send along some, uh, I, I think I, I've got a, some extra gifts there. And some of it has to do with my reflections and things like that. How lovely. Everybody, go to voyageofpurpose.com. 
Otherwise, you can also buy the book on ncreview.com. So I think that kind of wraps us up for today. David, I want to thank you so much for being our guest. Miriam, it was lovely. Thank you for having me. Blessings. Goodbye. We're going to conclude our show today with the track of the week selected by Scott Johnson of the Positive Music Association from among members of the PMA. This week we're featuring a song by Carl Anthony called God Belongs to All of Us. Sammy was a God-fearing man He read his Bible from the palm of his hat and then He went to heaven the moment he died It's where he saw the light That God belongs to all of us The general knows that God's on his side his enemy pray that the evil general die They thank God when the killing is done No God belongs to all of us story and the people were all struck. Rub his belly, it will give you good luck, I think. All he came to say is, the love belongs to all of us. There are no closed doors. The love is in your heart. The chosen are all Every nation with a father and mother's love No one will be ever denied No one 
God Belongs to All of Us by Carl Anthony from San Diego. Carl is just one of the PMA's growing group of musicians who are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. PMA members have music styles ranging from pop and rock to folk and jazz, all with positive messages designed to uplift, heal, or enlighten. To find out more about Carl's music, go to carlanthony.com. That's K-A-R-L-A-N-T-H-O-N-Y.com. And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that's our show for this week, and I hope you'll join us next week on NCR Radio when my guest will be Greg Braden, the best-selling author of Fractal Time and The Divine Matrix. We'll be discussing his new book, Deep Truth. If you enjoyed our show, why don't you check out our interview archives and our community of readers and authors at ncreview.com. And please tell your friends, too. I'm Miriam Knight. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.